0: I'm
1: Class has been dedicated by uh, Shimon and Shandal Leance. This is in honor of uh, Mrs. Leance's birthday, that is, was today. May Hashem bencher. We are a really big, big, and special shenaz bracha Wonderful, good year, good health. Nachas from the children, prosperity. Parnasa v'archava. And make many, many simchas this year, and only, only, only good things. That is in honor of uh, Shimon and Chandelians. Just gave the dedication. The second dedication tonight is, uh, was in, by, um, this is in honor of the birthday of Sarah Hazanov, our new Mayan secretary. May Hashem bench her. A lot, a lot, a lot of brachas, a lot of mazel, a lot of good, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of infinite amount of blessings. Um, a wonderful year of brach and atzlacha and everything. Amen. only Only good. Amen. Okay, so tonight, before we begin the class, uh, the CD this week is still uh, available. Uh, last week someone got so excited listening to the CD that he actually did call me and say, because I also did the same thing, I said retroactively, said he's going to find me someone. He's really excited. I have to find out if he found someone. But the idea of being able to pick up a, she- a CD or a thing retroactively is is great. It just shows us that we can control time and we can control the past as well. So that's just uh, out there. Now, uh, before tonight's class, I'd like to make an interesting introduction to the class. Um, Everybody listening to our classes over here at Mayan has seen kind of a shift over the last uh, probably few years that the the class became very shifted towards almost every week speaking about the up and coming redemption. I think that's uh, worthy of all the attention we have. Uh, there shouldn't be anything else in our mind but Mashiach these days, because that's what's happening. And the more conscious we are of it, the more excited we are of it about it. The uh, and, and, and someone came over to me, um, Rosh Hashanah time, and he said, "Rabbi Wolf, uh, you know, you used to talk about so many topics, and now your classes are always about Mashiach." <laughs> he says, "You think everybody in the community is so tuned into Mashiach? Maybe you can talk about some other things." So I remember Yom Kippur by night. He was here. And Yom Kippur by night. He, he told me this sort of—I wouldn't say complaint, but this uh, it, this insight—during um, uh, uh, a Seder Sechuve. And Yom Kippur by night, after David, he was here. And I and I and I told him. I don't know when it just came to me. I guess in my Yom Kippur thinking. You know, you know. You imagine this family living in in Mexico, and um, for for all their life, they're they're waiting to be able to. Leader living a hard, difficult hard difficult life somewhere out there in Tijuana or, or the like and they want to come to the United States and uh, finally finally uh, they're going to do it legally okay so finally finally after years and years and years and years of, of, of working on it and trying to you know do the application and all the things of trying to get over and they finally get a chance to be allowed to come to, to, to Move to the United States and become citizens. So, and now they're traveling. They all get into the families. All packed in the car. So it's a little minivan, and everybody's all stuffed up from all sides. And the whole family, with like seven children, are all packed into this car. And they're and they're coming down to the border. And you know, when you cross the Tijuana border or the Mexican border, into the thing, it's a very very long line. And you're really barely inching your way. You're inching your way very very slowly. And and there's all kinds of entertainment happening because everybody wants to sell you all kinds of stuff. As you're waiting by the border, they try to sell you a guitar, they try to sell you a sombrero, they try to sell you who knows what, (laughs) Hachamalis, all kinds of stuff that they're offering you by the window where people are coming by every minute. And you can really get caught up with all the entertainment that's happening or you can just be focused on one thing. As you're inching your way, inch by inch by inch by inch, you can't wait to just Get to that border and cross that border. So I basically told them we are at the Tijuana border now. And if it's taking a few years, fine. And all the stuff that are going on are distractions, the stuff that you might get busy with. The only thing in our mind is getting across the border right now. That's the way I felt Yom Kippur by night. And that's the truth that we should be feeling all the time. We are now at the threshold of the greatest transformation, the greatest, 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 and I can say greatest a gazillion more times transformation to hit the world. And it doesn't make everything else is irrelevant. It's irrelevant. Everything that is brought up about these problems and that problems and then the stock market and the this and that. I'm telling you it's all nourishkeit. We are so close. And it doesn't make, it doesn't change one iota if people are numb and you're totally tuned out, that's not changing the facts that that's where we are standing right now at the Mashiach border. So it's, it's just important. But, but it does help if we're not numb, the more of us wake up from that numbness and are aware that that's what's happening and we tuned in and we get excited about it, the easier, the quicker we make the transformation. The transformation is happening, but we're there. Based on that, I'd like to say an interesting thing that happened. A couple of years ago, um, you know, Mayan has different speakers and different, um, you know, all these events and it was during the month of Elul in which we had a big Elul program and I had invited a, a rabbi to speak over at Mayan something and it was a great talk. I, I appreciated it. It was a great talk. It was beautiful. But the last 10 minutes of the talk was very non hasidic content. Not that we ask only for Hasidic content, we try to bring everyone over here, but sometimes there's non-Hasidic content and sometimes it's like the total opposite of Hasidic content. And that was like the total opposite of Hasidic content and to the point that it was irking me, those last 10 10 minutes of that talk was really, really, really annoying me very deeply because I didn't want that to be said from this podium. It was talking disparagingly about Jews. And from this place, you can't talk negative about Jews. This is a Baal center. You can It doesn't make a difference how irreligious Jews are. It doesn't make a difference. You can't talk negatively about Jews from this place. And that's what the content was. And in my mind, as I was listening to those 10 minutes, and barely it was over, I said to myself that, I don't know if this is right or wrong, but I'm just doing it anyways. When I'm going to edit the class, to put it on the website, I'm going to chop off them, the last 10 minutes. I'm just going to end the class at the point to where I, I really liked it the last 10 minutes I'm not putting on. That was my thing. So then I go into the uh, into the uh, into the computer um, and I upload the class and I want to I'm looking for the place where I'm gonna hit delete. You know I'll highlight those last 10 minutes of audio, hit delete. And then the most the amazing thing happens as I put it up I get exactly to that point and suddenly the recording is going ah! 10 minutes, it was that the recording itself, the machine, did not accept um, a, a talk, words that were the opposite of what a Balshem center and the light and the way Balshem relates to Jews. Something that was opposite of Avas Yisrael did not, just the physical, the physical recorder, the walls of Maya don't accept that. And it was amazing. And I remember I called over people that worked here and I showed it and everybody was blown away. It just existed. And it it wasn't like a minute before. It was exactly when he got to that sentence is where the thing just didn't didn't accept. So based on that, I'll tell you a story that happened just last week, which is an introduction to today's class. So two weeks ago, I was in New York and I spoke a a lot about inspiring Jews to start really focusing on Mashiach. And I was on my way back home from that speech, and I was on the plane, and I had, was on a Monday, and I was preparing a certain talk, and that was very, very Moshiach-oriented. I, I shouldn't say it's a problem, it's not a problem. A woman was sitting next to me on the plane. There was one seat empty, and she was sitting, I was at the window, and she was in the aisle seat, and she was like, ah, it was like a 65-year-old woman from from New York, and from Queens, not from Queens, from, from New Jersey. And we got into a conversation as soon as she got onto the plane, and, and we ended up speaking for three and a half hours. And she, was, she had these not-such-good feelings about religious Jews. Uh, she had very bad impressions about Hasidic Jews or whatever it was. And uh, she sent me an email after the plane ride that she's, she's thanking me so much that how six hours can change a person's life. She was really, very special. So we had this great conversation, I invited her for Shabbos, she had a daughter, she had a daughter living here in Hollywood. It didn't turn out that it couldn't work out and I was still gonna have to contact the daughter and somehow get her over, it was a very special time. But because of that, it took away my preparation time. So, and I, and I got back here and I was busy and I was tired and it came an hour before the class and I needed something to teach. Uh, so I ran quickly to a safer and I read something and I said, oh, this is great, this is teachable problem was that it was dealing, it was a very, very beautiful Hasidic piece, but it was dealing with survival in exile. It wasn't dealing about Mashiach, it was dealing as how do you survive the dark days. And it was about Yaakov of, you know, I remember the class I gave it here. It was about Shir Hamalos, the 15 Shir Hamalos that Yaakov said in Tanakh Golas. It, it, it was really a beautiful Shir. But as I took out that book and I started reading it, and I said, that I realized what the content was. And it was so easy. It was, it was an easy talk for me to give over an only an hour of preparation. And then right away I had this, this sense that, no, 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 this is not the right class. I just spoke about inspiring people to get involved and speak about Mashiach. And here I'm going to give my Monday class and then speaking about darkness and exile. It's just not right. But I pushed that thought out of my mind. I said, leave me alone. Stop it, this craziness. Just let me do my thing. So I pushed that thought out of my mind, and I gave the class about the 15 She'er Hamalos and about surviving exile. <laughs> and the class was over, and I went home to grab something to eat, and I came back over here to 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 to, to pr- process the class. And I go onto my onto my onto my recorder, and the recorder is just and just it, 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 there was no sound. It was just down, and you see it recorded it but it recorded without, somehow it didn't pick up any sound. I checked every connection, and I could not figure out what was wrong with the mic. Nothing wrong with the mic. Nothing wrong with the with the connections. Everything was fine. It should have recorded. I don't know why it recorded. Now this has happened in the past, that for whatever reason the button was failed to push, something was not connected. It has happened, and it's very frustrating for me because then I have to give over the whole class. Over again. Okay, and I said, okay, Eberster, you in. Okay? I know what it was. You want me to focus on this? I didn't. Here I have a class. It's not recorded. I'm gonna to have to redo the class. So I made up my mind that Tuesday night I'm gonna record. I'm gonna re- I'm gonna I'm gonna give over, not the same class. I'm gonna give over, I'm gonna give over the initial class that I intended. And I'm gonna Tuesday night I have some we have a little group of, of young men that come over here to learn and I record, uh, usually I don't record that class because it's usually the same class that I do on Monday, I do over again with these guys. So I said, you know what, this time I'll do another class and I'll record it. Tuesday was a very, very hectic day, and with all the planning that I'm gonna plan to do that, I didn't do it. So it came right before the class, I said, you know what, I'm gonna redo what I said yesterday. And uh, I'm sure it's good, it was good actually, it's a good class, I'm gonna redo it. So I came back over here and I gave the class and I recorded it, and I went into the, to the office, and thank God it was recorded, so I said, oh, great, you see? Sometimes I, I, I read too deeply into things, and I was excited that it recorded, and I uploaded the share onto our website, and I produced the CD, I usually produce it Monday night, but this time I produced it on Tuesday night, fine. Wednesday, uh, and then, when was it? And then Wednesday the time we got the CDs out, I didn't get a chance to check the CD. Thursday morning I get a WhatsApp from someone. He says, the CD is corrupted. So I go, what? It's corrupted the CD? So I, I came to the shul, I grabbed one of the CDs, pop it into the CD in the car, and I hear uh, Kivi and Tuki talking. It's just like <laughs> And I realized, oh my. This is strike two on that same class. I know what I'm supposed to be speaking about. So I'm sorry to everyone. Uh, if I'm one-track minded, I can't help it. My machines don't want to pick up anything else unless I talk about Moshiach and the Parsha. Uh, based on that, I'd like to um, ask a question. When it comes to Parsha's Vayesha, this week's total portion, um, it's not a Parsha of Geula, of redemption, it's a Parsha of exile. The first exile of the Jewish people begins this week in the Parsha. Yosef gets sold as a slave. Consequently, the sale of Yosef leads the rest of the Jewish people into exile, into gods. The Midrash even says a very painful analogy. The Midrash says that when Yaakov, when when, when, when a cow needs to be taken to the slaughterhouse, and the cow doesn't want to go. And you can't get, and the cow is a strong cow, and the cow will not budge. So how do you pull the cow to the slaughterhouse? So the measher says, so you take the little calf, and as you lead the little calf down, the mother will follow. So the meeters says that when it came time for the Jewish people to go down into exile, and Yaakov is compared to the cow that would be going to the slaughter, Chasfishhalom, <laughs> meaning going to exile. Which is an extremely dark and painful experience for the Jewish people. So Yaakov wouldn't go. So, how did God do it? Instead of having to take Yaakov down in chains, that's what it was, instead of having to take him down, he led the little calf first, who's Yosef. And when the calf went down to Egypt, it kind of pulled Yaakov down to Mitzray. So, we know, so we see clearly, the Parsha Mechiras Yosef is the Parsha. Even though the exile of the Jewish people doesn't begin until Sefer Shamos, really, this is the story of the beginning of the trouble and the suffering and the darkness of exile begins in Parshas Vayesh. If that's the case, how are we going to do a Mashiach class on Parshas Vayesh? So that's the whole content of the class. Let's see if we can find the Geula in the golas. Let's see if we can find how a Parsha that looks like it's beginning in exile is really a Parsha that's beginning, that's beginning the, the, uh, the golas. Sorry, it's really the Parsha that's beginning the Redemption. So, interesting, the words, the first opening words that the Torah relates, after the actual sale of Yosef, when the Torah starts telling us the story of the Yosef itself, the Torah says that the Yosef hurab Mitzrayim, and Yosef was taken down to Egypt, or Yosef descended to Egypt. Now, those words, with those words of the opening of the Golas. The gullus of Yosef, and consequently the gullus of the Jewish people. But again, so you have to look into Torah Shabal You have to look into Midrash, you have to look into the deeper meaning, and then you can find, you know, it, it enables you to see the essence of something. So the Midrash says on the word Hurad, the word Hurad, which means he descended, has another meaning. It says, V'yosef Hurad Mitzrayimah, Medrash Rabbah. Yosef went down to Egypt, but it also says, V'yosef, Yosef is the ruler. Hurad Mitzrayimah means he's going down to be submissive to Mitzrayim. He's descending to be controlled by Egypt. But on the other hand, it says V'yosef, that Yosef is the ruler. V'yosef, mitz- so so therefore, the Medrash says that you should read the word hu Hurad has another meaning. Urab comes from the word, the dominion, the dominator. Like we see when it speaks about Mashiach, it says in the pasuk, V'yifrach b'yamach tzadik, well, the, the tzadik is Mashiach tzadkenu, Yifrach he will blossom. shalom fine. And then it says, V'yered miyam he will rule from sea to sea. V'yerd, he will rule. So the word Hurad, or like it says by, Hashem says by Adam uh when he, when, he, when, he, when he says, let's create man, V'yerdu bidgas he will rule over the fish of the sea. So, Redia means a, to rule over. So the Medrish learns, when it says Hurad Mitzrayimah, what it really means is that Yosef became the ruler over Egypt. V'yosef Hurad Mitzrayimah, Yosef became the ruler. Sholat b'hoim, like it says, vayerd kovash He had full control. Kuhuroyde brings a pasuk of Shmu'al Aleph, Melachem Aleph. Kuhuroyde because he rules the whole eiver hanar and the entire on the side of the river. So the word hurad means to rule over. So, so now we have to read a little bit deeper. The pasuk that seems to be describing a descent, a subservience, Yosef is becoming a servant to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians. The deeper inner the deeper in meaning is that he became the ruler. Like we actually see that even though um, Yosef was initially sold as a slave, and he had, the Medresh describes the various different the suffering that he went through both on the time that he was going down in the early stages. But very, very, very quickly, Yosef rises to the top. Right? It took a little while as he was a slave and then he was thrown into prison. But eventually, Yosef becomes the ruler over all over Egypt. And not only the ruler over Egypt, he becomes the ruler of the whole world because the famine brings everybody to Egypt. Everybody's down to their knees to Egypt. Yosef is the ruler over all the people in the world. So you see, so what again? So it looks like on the out, outside, as Yosef is now going and becoming a, a servant in Egypt, he's subservient. He's really, really the master over all of Egypt. That's the story. When we think about this, and we realize that Yosef is just a an example. Yosef is the one leading the Jewish people into the exile. So the story of Yosef is really the story of the Jewish people. When the Jewish people went to exile, we can look at the exile as exile. We can look at the exile as a time of darkness. We can look at the Gullus as a time of immense suffering and pain and so on and so forth. All we realize that we always have to look at the Kavanah. We always have to look at the intention, at what it's all about. When the Jews went down to Egypt, the ultimate purpose, it wasn't like there was punishment. And then later, when the punishment was over, God had mercy on them and he took them out of Mitzrayah. They initially went down to Egypt so that they can come out of Egypt. But why do they have to go down in order to come out? They went down so that they can come out and take all the energy of Egypt, all the, all the sparks of holiness, and physically all the material wealth of Egypt became theirs. So even though there was a horrific dark period of time until that would happen, but the purpose of it all was that purification of Egypt, the raising of all the sparks of holiness that they extracted from Egypt, the Khuj Gagal that they came out with that great wealth, and including in that is the ultimate achievement that they had when they came out of Egypt. But when they went out of Egypt, they were able to go to Har Sinai and receive the Torah and become the greatest nation in in the world and the leaders of all of humanity, and ultimately those who lead the world to its ultimate purification and ultimate elevation, which is the days of Mashiach. And in order for this to happen, we have to go through this cleansing, this purification, this rectification, and so on and so forth. So, this tells us that what, that there's two things to exile. There's the external element of exile, and then there's the internal, the inner, panemius of it. And the panemius of it is really geulah, it's really redemption, similar to Yosef. And the medrash characterizes this so well by the medrash seeing it in the very initial word, when the Apostlech is describing the initial descent of Yosef to Mitzrayim, don't read the word of urab falling down. Read the word of urab dominion. Yosef had became a Moshe and a ruler of all of Mitzrayim. This is good, but not good enough. The reason why it's not good enough is because at the very end, Yosef coming out on top, Yosef being the ruler, and again, it's interesting how this thing is, even though, again, it comes out from the Midrash, and when you see the whole story, but actually the psukim themselves reveal it. We know that that's, that's the truth in every time we go through any kind of down In our lives, whenever we go through any kind of harsh, hard period, whenever we go through anything dark and difficult, and, and sometimes we feel like we're breaking, we feel like we're we're, we're, so, we're being crushed, we're being overwhelmed. Life is treating us with such difficulties. and But we know the Jewish response to all suffering and all hardship and all difficulty is gamzu Tovah. There, there is going to be light at the end of the tunnel. And the light at the end of the tunnel is going to be so great that it's going to justify going in the tunnel in the first place. That's what we know. gamzu Tovah, this too. And it will lead to a greater good. But by Yosef's story, it's not just a gamzu Tovah that we need to interpret. The, the Pasuk actually says it. Yosef has a conversation with his brothers. And he says, notwithstanding your horrible intentions in you selling me, you sold me because you wanted to hurt me. You sold me because you wanted to get back at me. You wanted to. I said I'm going to be a king and you wanted to show me that I'm very far from being a king, that I'm going to be a slave to who? To slaves, to the Egyptians. Yet, that was your intentions. But God had a whole other plan. God sent me to be the savior of all of humanity, to save you, to feed your family, and to save the world from the famine. It's on a simple level, you'll see save the world from that horrific famine and made sure that the world can survive and, and that life on Earth can continue. What a schuz for one human being to save humanity, especially save the Jewish people. Yosef says it openly. So again, so this illustrates this idea. That even when things look dark and even darker or extremely bleak, we need to know that there's a great godly plan and there's a great goodness that's coming out of it. The problem, however, why, we, why that does not suffice is because all that only reveals itself in Parshas Vayigash, in the Parshas Vayichi, or at least in Parshas Miketz, when Yosef interprets the dreams of Paro, and how many years is that after he went down to Mitzrayim? That took a while, because Yosef was 12 years in prison. And before that, he was working for Potiphar. I'm not exactly sure how long he was working for Potiphar. But if you were to this out, it was at least 12 years. So that happens 12 years later when he becomes a king. Then retroactively you see that it was really all for the good. But the time that he went down, it's dark and it's difficult. So even though the Midrash is already saying it in the words that the purpose of the Yerida is not Yerida, the sense of descent, the purpose of the Yerida is descent of the scent of year. The Yerid means to dominate. But that's only going to happen later. That's not happening now. But the Midrash is saying that right now he's becoming the master over Egypt. Initially, when he's going into Egypt, he's already being the master over Egypt. So how does that work? How can we understand that he's never even going down? That's from the very, very beginning what appears to us as Yosef being um, subservient to Egypt, to some... What's Egypt? Egypt is a force of klippa, a force of unholiness, a force of darkness, which we're all struggling with, whether it's external powers in the world that are interfering with, with holiness, whether it's internal demons that we all struggle with, whatever it is, Whatever it is, the darknesses that there is in the world coming from the Klippa, that's Mitzrayim. And yet we're saying that when Yosef is put through these things, it's not just that later something will happen that's good. From the very, very beginning, he's already mastering. He's becoming a master over Egypt. So to understand this, gain better insight into this idea. We need to understand something else. And that is, The idea, Um, oh, now one more thing. The Midrash, in continuation to um, this, just this Midrash that says that when Yosef was going down, we shouldn't read the word going down, we should read it dominating in Egypt. The Midrash actually also says another thing. The Midrash says that when Yosef hurah, that when Yosef went down, it means that he brought the Shekhinah down with him that God came down with Yosef. How do you know that Hashem came down with Yosef? It says, Hashem Im, Hashem is Yosef, that Hashem was with Yosef. So there's another meaning to the word hura. Hura is he's causing a yurida, he's causing a descent of the Shechim, which generally means that wherever the Jew goes, God goes with him. But over here, there's something even deeper than that. <coughs> what the, the truth is this will apply also to the Jewish people. What is the deeper meaning that God is going with us when we go down into darkness? And these two things are related. The first pirish of Hura, that Hura means dominion, because when God goes somewhere, God can't be a slave. God can't even be temporarily a slave. Chas subservient to anything. And even when it appears that, so to speak, there is some kind of subservience of holiness to the unholy, it's only an appearance. But the truth is that that the actual descent of the divine into some into some unholy environment and in a sense being weakened or being controlled by some unholy force, it's really because Hashem is truly taking taking charge and subduing his enemy. And part of that subduing, the process of subduing, is an external appearance of being defeated temporarily. But let's understand. We're now, as I spoke about last week, uh, in a time of Kislev, the time uh, we're celebrating a holiday this week on the 19th of Kislev. Um, a great Sadiq Rishnir Zaman of the Yadi, came out of prison. Um, and and there's a, there, there is a a traditional song that's sung on this day, it's a Pasuk in Tehillim. But there's the, the theme of this time is a Pasuk and Tehill in Tehillim in Perik Nun hay, where it says, Pada b'shalo nafshi," You have redeemed in peace my soul. King David, David HaMelech, says this about his life. David HaMelech had many oppressors. David HaMelech had many people chasing him. And not much suffering. Even his own children turned on him. In regards to one of his sons, Avshalom, who actually staged a whole revolt and wanted to kill his father. So David Melech was saved from Avshalom and David the Melech says, I was redeemed peacefully for my soul. Mikravli, from from those that are doing battle with me. Krav, it means, comes from the word um, war. Waging war, it's called a krav. Like, like everybody familiar with the term krav maga? Krav maga is like a, a, a type of Israeli uh, a martial arts, right? It's called krav, because what does krav mean? Krav means you're engaging in war. Mikrav leave from this, I was saved from those that are fighting. me. But David the Melech says, Now this is a very, 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 very important theme in the Hasidic movement. And it's very, very important to this 19th of Kislev that we're celebrating this week. It's connected to the entire idea of what Hasidism is supposed to bring to us. And that means that we're all in conflict. We all have conflict with, between the good and the bad. Until Mashiach comes, there is an internal conflict, a war going on between our Yitzh Tov, our good inclination, our Yitzh Hara, between holiness in the world and the unholy. There is a clash, there is a fight, there is a wrestling going on. And we're saying, Pada Bishalay not only am I redeemed from my enemies, but... So, Pada Bisholem Nafshi. Pada Bisholem, the redemption and peace. The question is, what does it mean, a padiya Bisholem, to be redeemed in a peaceful manner? It implies that it's possible for us to be redeemed in a non-peaceful way. And we're asking Hashem to be redeemed in a peaceful way. So what is the significance of a redemption peacefully? So the idea is as follows. Um, there are three ways in which we can deal with the unholy in our lives. There are three ways in which we can deal with and overcome that which is unholy, that which is negative in the world and negative in our own personal lives. One, one element, one element of, um, of pedia. Of, of, uh, of redemption, of a kind of overcoming that which is negative, that which is standing in our way. One element in, is, is simply a war where two people tangle with each other, two people fight, I see, physically, you know, two enemies. You have one person that's, um, that's uh, you know, people that are, 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 are in conflict with each other. Right, and they're going to fight it out. They're going to have a... They're going to wrestle with each other. So you have an interesting thing. Here's, a, here's an interesting idea. As long as, you know, the other person that's at, in conflict with me or someone that's my enemy, as long as I don't fight it out, as long as we don't step in actually to have a showdown, so what's going to happen? We're going to remain... We, we might remain um, total total enemies for each other, the rest of our lives we'll never fight because we're not gonna let it come to an actual, like, like you know, the the States with now the America and, the, and, and North Korea. It's a problem. We can leave it as it is, but then, you know, the enemy's only gonna get more and more and more, you know, might, his capabilities are only gonna get worse and worse, and it's kinda of scary. You gotta do something. Here's the thing, you can't subdue the other one unless you're actually gonna get close to them and actually start fighting. What's so terrifying with North Korea today? What's terrifying is, like, it's, it's, it's in a sense, you think it's a lose-lose situation. If we don't do anything, this maniac is just going to increase his capabilities, and Chas I mean, will have abilities to nuke the entire world. You don't want to let that happen. On the other hand, he's pretty capable now as well. And and to leave him as he is, you don't have a choice. You have to fight. If you fight, God forbid, it can be, and that's why, you know, we hope Mashiach is going to come and resolve the situation. But if you're going to fight... The only chance to subdue him is to fight him, and when you're going to fight him, the chas v'shalom. There can be terrible repercussions. And on a small scale, when a person fights with someone else, that's what happens. As if you're not going to provoke, if you're not going to get into the if you're not going to get into the ring and wrestle with him, you're never going to defeat him. So you have to wrestle with him, and the the very wrestling itself, the tangling with, with the enemy you're going to get some scratches and bruises. It's impossible not to do that. In the words of the sages, if you wrestle with someone that's dirty, someone that's that's filthy, you're going to get filthy just by wrestling with them. So the Pasuk actually describes Hashem coming out of the exile. I think it's a Pasuk in Yeshaya where it talks about God in the end of days after He wages war against all the all the dark forces in the world. After he's slaughtering Edom, he's coming back. Mi z'o Who's the one coming from batzra means God is coming back from war. And it says that God's clothing are all stained with blood. A war means you're going to get stained, you're going to get hurt. And that's in every kind of war. You know, if you're going to fight it out with someone, it doesn't have to be with a physical fight. If you're going to fight it out with someone and have an argument, and back and forth, you're gonna get hurt by that argument. You're making yourself vulnerable in that fight. That's why, interesting, the word "krov," which means fighting, also means coming close. It comes from the word Karov. You can't fight with the other and defeat the other unless you get very close. Either physically, or you have to pick up a phone and fight with them on the phone. <laughs> or you're gonna have a face-to-face argument. But in the end, you have to get close. And only when you're going to confront the situation, and you're going to argue it, even if you're going to win. Even if your arguments are so powerful, you're going to win. You're going to defeat the other person, they're never going to bother you again. But it's going to take a toll, just that fight. As I said earlier, even on Hashem, when He comes out of Golas, it says that is stained with blood. <muchol ma'ubishai aga'alti> My clothing became dirty. In our lives, what does that mean? It says, it's interesting, we have two souls. We have a godly soul, and we have an animal soul. We have a nefesha le'kis, a holy neshama, and we have an animal soul. And our nefesha le'kis and our animal soul are totally two opposites. Our godly soul wants to serve Hashem, wants to cleave to God, wants to do one thing, be all, be, you know, daven, learn Torah, do mitzvahs, be an inspiration to others. The animal soul wants to eat and drink and have a good time. That's all it wants. All it cares about. Okay? Now, it's possible that we live, and this is sad, that we can live... We all have the dichotomy. We all, Unless we're a tzaddik, and there are very, very, very true tzaddikim. There are very few people that have sublimated their animal soul. But for most of us, it's not that way. We have both. But a lot of times, what happens a lot in a person is that we can create kind of a, 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 a segregation. We have two selves. We have a higher self that wakes up in the morning and hopefully we, we tune into it in the morning for two hours. You know, we, we go we go to the mikveh in the morning, we say some tehillah, we learn dafayomi, we learn a little chassidiz, that we daven and we're tuned into our higher self. And that's working. And then when we leave the shul and we go back into the world and we're walking down downtown, suddenly the other self appears with a whole other set of aspirations, desires and wants. And it's like two selves. And then when it comes Shabbos, we turn on one, the other self. And then when it comes just a regular dark after, you know, uh, evening, the other self is turned on. It's two selves that never engage. And we remain in conflict all our lives, two separate beings. But we never engage the two souls in conversation. How do you engage, how do you engage the two souls in conversations? That one soul, hopefully our godly soul, should influence our dark soul to change it, to defeat it, should once of all say, one so well off, you're, you're hacking me in China, You're giving me stupidity. I don't want, to. I hear you. you you're, you're, what you want is actually just plain stupidity. Leave me alone. And you, you, you want you, you don't want only to experience spiritual moments that are wonderful and great, and just ignore this other soul, because this other soul is very much part of you. It's who you are. So what are you gonna do about it? So in Zohar it says, Shas Shas The time of davening is the time of battle. Time of davening. What does that mean? When you're davening in the way we daven the way we're supposed to, what we're trying to do is, you're trying to identify during prayer with Hashem. You're trying to say, you're trying to realize that what do I love? Who do I really care about? What's meaningful in my life, God? So you meditate. The true idea of davening is to take the Halleluah, let's say, or ashray, or Yichvod Hashem or Baruch She'Alma, or Ahodu, whatever part of davening you, you can tune into and say, you know, say these three psukim and spend ten minutes just saying. Look, it's, it's okay if the minion goes ahead. You know, you have, you have to daven. This is a life. This is a matter of life and death. That's that's the issue. You know, sometimes people think, okay, minion, minion, minion. i have the minion. You daven daven once in your life. Sorry for saying this. I don't want to get in trouble, but I'm telling you, there are people who are like, like a davening every time with minion, 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 hopping, and but you never daven even once in your life because you never stop to allow the meaning of these words to impact you. Well, of course, the person is a daven minion, but once in a while, it's okay if the minion will run ahead a little bit and you'll get lost, lose yourself one time in the pasuk in the psukim of Ashere, Kvoid malchuscha yameiru gavarascha yedaberu. Paseach es yodecho must be aloch ha'irat. And imagine for you to think for five minutes. Let's say five minutes. Stop and just say that that pasuk. You can't say it with your mouth. But five minutes over again. Paseach es yodecho. You open up your hand and you feed chai, to every live, living being rats on, according to his will you're the one who's giving every single creature and every being every, every dollar, every penny, every nickel every morsel of food and imagine if you think that for 10-15 minutes not 10-15, 5 minutes imagine that what kind of day the day is going to be how we won't get distracted by what by what the animal soul thinks. The animal soul thinks that I'm the master of my future. I'm the one controlling my pranasa. I'm the one who brings me the livelihood. I can't give tzedakah because I can't because then I'm not going to have enough. I can't do this, I can't do that. The animal soul has to try and I, I I can't go to minyan, I can't daven, I can't I can't learn because what do you mean? The competition, how will I be able to stay in the, it's such a competitive world? I have to work and give it all I've got who has time for Yiddishkeit and so on and so forth. You realize these are two ideologies. They are two approaches. So if you allow yourself to meditate for a little while in the truths of what the Siddur is telling you, what Davening tells you, then, oh, so now you're voicing your opinion of your godly soul, your ideas of your godly soul very strongly. The tzar says that this is a war. Because you know what's going to happen during Davening? The other side, the unholy side, the animal soul, will not sit quietly. Because what you're doing now is, you're like poking it. You're telling him that his Opinion that life is godless and the world is all that there is. Reality is a wor- is the world and what you know and and, and and the rules of economics or whatever it is, that's reality and that's life. So he feels very threatened. So that's why it says an interesting thing in Hasidus, an amazing thing: that dafka while you're davening, if you're davening well, you're going to start experience we, we, we experience really, really, really negative thoughts. The animal soul will start like really, really throwing negative thoughts at us, and sometimes ugly thoughts. Sometimes even thinks that thoughts that generally we would never even feel when we're not when we're not davening. You know, during the day, I would never. You would never. A person would never have thought something so n- not nice, something so despicable. But that's good during that. davening. Think I'm oh, fouled with my filling on my head Why i we wearing a Come on, what? And what a per- what happens is in tanya he discusses this. Sometimes a person will deduce from that that I'm not really dying Because had I really been dominating, how can I have such thoughts? So the Tanya says actually in chapter 28, that's a sign that you're really davening. You're really, really davening. Why? Why is that a sign you're really davening? Because your animal soul feels threatened. And what is the rule when two people are fighting, when one starts overpowering the other, what's the other gonna do? You ever see, you watch two wrestlers or two boxers? and they're boxing each other so when they're sitting and they're going like this like for a while but like no one is hitting anybody, they're just dancing around in the, in the thing and then at a certain point one goes in for contact and the other one starts fighting for his life, he's throwing punches like crazy right? so that's what's gonna happen but you can't defeat the other if you're gonna dance around the, dancing, the, the boxing ring the whole time and not go in there for a punch or two you, you're never gonna defeat him, you have to get close but when you get close you make yourself vulnerable and you get hit you have to do it. In the end, you'll win. That's you can beat the unholy that way, and we all need to do that. But it's not a pedia b'sholom. You're not being redeemed peacefully because you have to fight, and you have to slaughter, and you have to tangle with the unholy. And tangling with the unholy will inevitably get you dirty. Get you. Get you. You'll be impacted. By you. Then there's another type of a fight which is called another way of defeating the unholy inside of us. That's called with peace. What's that? Sometimes you have someone who's, who, who, who uh, you know, again, you have two enemies, but one of them rises to power and gets stronger and stronger and gets so, get such a powerful presence and such a strong stance that the enemy gets so scared that they run and they hide. And they wouldn't dare fight you just because of what? Because, because they realize that that, that that you're you're just too powerful for them. So what do we mean by here? Yeah? It's like this: another way you can impact your enemy to become defeated. Yeah. Now this enemy is loud. Okay, he's voicing his opinion against you. He's doing whatever. He's he's he's, he's an opponent. He's a, he's a strong opponent. But then, like similar, give you an example. Talk about. The holy versus the unholy. There's a lot of unholiness in the world going on since God created the world. Until when? Until Yetzias Mitzrayim, there was a ton of unholiness going on in the world. Right? A lot of unholy oh, Rebellion, sodom Amorah, the Mabel, the Doirah Flog. I mean, that's the whole story of the Torah. Until Yetzias Mitzrayim, the whole thing is one rebellion after the other. What happened by Yetzias Mitzrayim? God put his foot down. And in the beginning, God, get, God went to war. Against Egypt. That's the first case. He's fighting Hashem himself. I won't go down. Hashem went down into Egypt, boom, 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 crashing and smashing them. Fine. That was the first stage. That's not called Pada B'Shalem. But then, after Yetzias and after Kriyas Yamsuf, when God did such an unbelievable miracle, split the sea open, and then all of Egypt was suddenly drowned. It was such a powerful demonstration of God's power in the world, so what happened to all the other nations? All the other nations. Forget about Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim was defeated through a battle. But the other nations, what happened? Shamu Amin, Mir, Gazim, the nations heard, they trembled, they feared. They wouldn't dare stand up to even make, to even make one one peep against holiness, against Kedusha, because they're terrified. They're running like little mice into their rat holes. The clipper runs away. The unholy hides. It's an unbelievable victory. But this victory is not through a tanglement. Hashem was not fighting with the nations, with all these nations, and each one of them breaking them, destroying them. The mere demonstration of God's might and power sent them all flying, sent them all running. So that's the second battle. Then you're redeemed from your opposition. You have an opposition. You're redeemed from your opposition. But the manner in which you're redeemed from the opposition is not through fighting them, just by your mere presence. And that's why it's a pada, it's a redemption, b'shammet, with peace. An example of these two types of defeating of the enemy, the difference between David HaMelech and Shlomo HaMelech. What's the difference between David HaMelech, King David, and King Solomon, and Shlomo HaMelech? David HaMelech was told that he can't build the base on Migdash. Why? Ki ish is because he's a man of war. Dam l'roi You spilled a lot of blood. King David spilled a lot of blood. He had to fight his enemies. He had to slay the dragons. He fought. He fought. He, it, it, it took a toll on him. There's a certain um, blemish to... Whatever you can say on his soul, because of the kalpas that he destroyed. Shlomo Hamelach, however, lived in a time. The reason he's called Shlomo is etein of Peace I will give in his days. Why? Shlomo Hamelach came after David HaMelech. Once David HaMelech established, who's the boss in the world. During that time, Shlomo Melech already ascended to the king, and with his with his unbelievable, incredible wisdom that he had, and his knowledge, and his and everything. It created, his renown was so, was so great that the nations in the world all succumbed to him. And he was a king over the entire world. Everybody was afraid of him. <coughs> so that's Bishon. The only Hissar and the lacking over here is, you're not destroying your enemies, you're only subduing them because they're hiding, as I said before, like rats going into their little holes. But they're there. It's not that they're not gone. God. They'll wait till a later time when you're whatever reason, when you'll become weaker, they'll reemerge again. It's not a complete and total transformation. In a sense, when you're doing battle with your enemy, and you're actually fighting, you're actually destroying the enemy. Here, you're not destroying them. You're overwhelming it with your overwhelming power so that they're hiding and they're going into, so there's a, but they're not gonna bother you. What does it mean in our spiritual service Prayer, we said before, is a bloody battle. Real prayer. If we daven the way we should, the Zohar says our davening is a battle. But there's another way in which we get rid of the darkness in our soul and the darkness in the world. Hear the indian hear what Chassidus says. Chassidus is so beautiful. It's so real, it's so rich, it's so important for every person in the world to learn Chassidus. Chassidus so says, another way to deal with the unholy is by studying Torah. What are you doing when you're studying Torah? When you're studying Torah, you are deciding, you're proclaiming, you're taking a mega, mega, megaphone, like a big microphone, a big megaphone, and you're announcing with a powerful, godly, thunderous voice, because you're not speaking, God is speaking through your mouth. When a yid learns Torah, Hashem is speaking. You are saying, this is kosher, and this is not kosher. This is correct, and this is incorrect. This is legal, and this is illegal. This is innocent, and this... By making that declaration, let's say you're saying that these things are forbidden, they're wrong, they shouldn't be. That powerful statement is causing all the mice and the rats in creation to run and hide. Because the king has spoken. Torah, however, doesn't wrestle with the unholy. Torah doesn't debate the unholy. Torah just comes and makes the statement. This is good. This is kosher. This is not kosher. The Gemara says an interesting thing: the Torah is compared to fire. Just like fire doesn't become, cannot become defiled, fire cannot become tameh. So too, Torah doesn't become tameh. That means that Torah remains above that which it's fixing. When Torah fixes something in the world and it says that so and so is wrong and it shouldn't be, Torah is not is not. Entering into an entanglement with it to fight it like when you're praying when you're praying. I am arguing with the with my Sahara. The Sahara is suggesting what what he or she whatever that my Sahara is the Sahara is Suggesting to me that so-and-so is right and good and this is what I should be pursuing This is what I should be about and I'm trying to convince my Sahara Otherwise That godliness is true holiness is true and I should devote myself to that back and forth argument that's allowing for the holy for the neshama to get a little soiled in that argument but when I'm learning Torah and I'm defeating this is clear we all know this and we're told many times that when a yid studies Torah the the Gemara says Torah Matashash, the Torah weakens the Yitzhah it defeats the sages say that when a person gets a Yitzhah when a person gets an evil inclination a strong impulse to do something bad so what should you do? Run to the base of Medrash. Take out a Gemara, learn. What are you going to do when you learn? You're not arguing when you learn And you're not just distracting yourself. Then you can distract yourself with anything. Take out a book of math and read it. Take out, I don't know, whatever. But you're not you're doing that. Learn Torah. Because the holiness of Torah is the Kedusha of Torah. is going to defeat the Klippa. But how does it defeat the Klippa? How does it defeat the unholy? How does it knock out the Yitzharah? Not by arguing. By making a powerful stand and the unholy gets scared of it can't fight it because it's the Word of God. So that's called Pada b'shalim. it's a redemption with peace. But as I said before, there is a chisar in here. There's something lacking in this. What's lacking? What's lacking is that even though you've, with a thunderous powerful statement, you stated what's holy, you stated what's right, you stated what's right, and the unholy is silenced, the unholy is neutralized, but it's only neutralized, temporarily. It can always come back. And as we said, after Shlomo HaMelech died, guess what? All these klipas in the world returned. It's only in the third level of kingship. Who's the third level of kingship? That's Mashiach. There's David Amalech, there's Shlomo and then there's Moshiach Tzedken. When Mashiach will come, it will be a whole of his story. That's gonna be the ultimate Bisholem, redemption and peace. What's the redemption of Moshiach Tzedken? What is that going to happen? then? The unholy, it's... Also, oh, what's going to be? So here, here is the here is the idea of the third pedia, the third way of dealing with the unholy. Third way of dealing with the unholy is that you do lower yourself down into its into its space. Unlike when we're learning Torah, unlike as we said before, God remaining aloof and above it all and making it, and stating His power. No, you're actually entering into the lower place to deal with that which is a. Antagonist to Kedusha, that which is against holiness. You're entering into the space of the exile, of the darkness, of whatever it is that you're dealing with. But the way you deal with it is is not through fighting with it. You deal with it by, by you entering inside of it. It itself transforms and changes. You don't have to argue with it. You don't have to fight with it. You don't have to wrestle with it. By you merely entering into it, you are able to go inside of it and transform it inside out. And we'll see an example of that soon. What does that mean? The ability to be able to go into something and not have to fight with it, but to take the enemy itself and turn the gullus itself, the enemy itself, into your ally. Wow, that's a whole different transformation. That's a whole different one. And that's a thorough transformation. Where do we see that? That's the story of Yosef. That's the story of Yosef. Yosef gets sold as a slave, and he becomes a slave. Yosef Hurad, Yosef descends. He descends, he goes down. He is, at first, he's a servant in his master's house. But what happens in his master's house? Let's read the story. What happens in his master's house? What happens in his master's house? His master sees that God is with him. Since when is an Egyptian whose entire mind, he's so ungodly, he's so unholy, suddenly recognizing God? Do you realize what's happening over here? Just that little story. An Egyptian who never thought about God all of his life. He has a bunch of pagan, he serves all the idols, all the gods of Egypt. He's full of, and we know that Potiphar, the Talmud tells us, although he was a real, real low life. He's a real, real, real low, low guy. He ain't no Tzaddik. Yosef comes into his house, and what happens to Potiphar? He's suddenly seeing that God is with him. He's suddenly aware of Hashem. He respects Yosef, and he puts Yosef to be the manager in his house. Now let's take the story further. Yosef goes down to Egypt, goes down, and becomes a prisoner. He becomes a prisoner. Guess what? He had a prison number. He's a prisoner. Prison number, prisoner number one, whatever, nine, six, three, seven. He was a full-fledged prisoner. And guess what? The minister, the The chief, uh, what is it called? Um, What do they call the prison? uh, Heads of what, squadron? Or what do they call them? Chaplain? No, it's not a chaplain in the prison. The warden. The chief warden in charge of the prison sees that God is with him. The pri... (laughs) Know about prison wardens, what type of people they are usually. (laughs) If they wouldn't be a prison warden, they would be the worst prisoner, right? This guy's a prison warden. So what kind of, in Egypt, Three thousand years ago and suddenly Yosef comes through and this guy's also aware of that, and he appoints Yosef to be in charge of the prison see what's happening wherever Yosef goes he enters into the situation and he flips the situation over inside out from within without fighting it without arguing it doesn't say that Yosef had a discussion a debate, a religious debate about religion with the with the his mere presence over there transformed that gallus itself into a redemption. And that's Yosef wherever he goes. That's the ultimate padiya b'shalom. You're, you're not staying above it. You're not floating above it. You're not entering into it and debating and fighting. Your truth is so strong. You know what's going on here? Your truth is so strong that you're more a mere being that convinces the other side that you're right without you having to say anything. But you're in it. Not above it. Not from above. Not overwhelming it. But as if this becomes... They didn't even realize that Yosef was the one that transformed them. They thought that that's the way they're thinking. And that's the truth. They really were thinking that way. Wow. This idea that Yosef has this ability to go within and rule immediately when he's going down, he's going down so that he can rule over the situation. It's really the story, if you take a look, the difference between, here's something very beautiful, between the Shvatim, Yaakov Avinu, and Yosef. Or let's put it this way, the Shvatim, the tribes, the Avais, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and and Yosef. What's the difference between three levels of tzaddikim? The Shvatim are tzaddikim, very big tzaddikim, and they were in a world that was filled with such such unholiness, they were connected to Hashem. But it says the way they connected to God, the Shvatim, was the reason why they chose to be shepherds, they were all shepherds, is because to them the world was a very, very great distraction they could not be within the world and see God in the world. To them, the world was very distracting. They knew the truth of Hashem, but in order for them to connect to God, they needed to close their eyes. Like when we say, Shema Yisrael, close our eyes. And then I say, Hashem Echad. I'm going to say, Shema Yisrael, I'm going to close my eyes. I'm not going to look at the walls. I'm not going to look at what's around me because if I open my eyes and I see what's around me, then I'm not seeing Echad. I'm seeing a bunch of stuff. So I'm going to close my eyes. And when I close my eyes, Ah, Hashem Elikeinu, God is real. And that's what the Shvatim needed to do. The reason they were shepherds was so they can go off into the fields where they're not going to be distracted. And that's how they served Hashem. One of the reasons the Shvatim couldn't, couldn't, they didn't recognize Yosef because when they came to Egypt, (laughs) they saw a person who was so worldly. Yosef was a worldly man. And for them, a spiritual person couldn't be a worldly man. To them it was a conflict. Either you're going to be in shul all day, close your eyes, and be holy, or you're going to be in the world. You can't be both. It's one of the two. So they didn't recognize those because they had, they had no understanding of what kind of person this is. They had zero understanding of this. This was them. Okay. Now let's take a look at the others. What's the difference That's with the others? The Shvatim are people that they can be holy, but they need to negate the world in order to be holy. Follow? The world is a contradiction. They need to negate it in order to be holy. The Avais are people on a much, the Avais are our forefathers on a much higher level. The Avais are on a level that they're able to be within the world, be down here, they don't have to be hidden from it. They can be in the world and see everything that's going on and yet not get distracted from God. They can maintain their dveikos even in a time when they're mamish faced with, with things. Why? Because even when they're within it, they are above it. So they're not really ever entering in it. They're still remaining in their godly space even when they're in Grand Central Station. So to, to explain this, the little difference between the two, imagine a person in a busy airport or in a busy train station, and it comes time to daven Mincha. And you'll have two approaches of how you're going to David Mincha. If someone's spirituality is very weak, is weak, I mean, I don't want to say weak, but weaker, relative. Not weak, but weaker. And they really want to daven mincha well. And they have a problem because they're in Grand Central Station, in a very busy place, or they're in the middle of a busy terminal in the airport. So they're going to take a couple of minutes until they find a little corner somewhere where no one is there. And over there they're going to daven, and even then, they're going to try, it's going to be hard and difficult, but let's say they're able to, in this quiet place, daven and they're not distracted, connect to the Eberstein. They can connect to Then you have a tzaddik who God is so real. Hashem is so real. Hashem is so vivid to him. He has to Davin Mincha and he's in Grand Central Station and there's thousands of people walking back and forth. He can just stand right in the middle and close his eyes and start Davin mincha, and everything could be going on around him and he doesn't even know that anything is happening. Why? Because to Hashem, Hashem is so vivid that the whole world dissipates. All the millions of people, all the, all the hundreds of people around him and all the loudspeaker announcements and the train coming in and the train going out and the, and all of this guy playing on his guitar and whatever, I don't know, whatever's happening else in, in Grand Central Station, all these things become absolutely dissolved. They don't exist for him because right now God is and there's nothing but Hashem. In the midst of this, obviously a person who can do that is a sign that his connection to the Amish there is one that even when... He's faced with the world, the sounds, the noise, the distractions of the world. They don't distract him. Why? Because all of the world is cancelled. You realize what's going on? The world is cancelled in front of Hashem. Hashem is the world doesn't exist in front of God. So the moment he turns to God, it's as if the world dissolves. Nothing is there. He doesn't even know. You can tap him and knock him. He doesn't even know because he's tabbing Shemanez. It's a much higher level. That's the always. But then there is Yosef. What's the Madrego of Yosef? The level of Yosef is not only that. It's not that he was, when he was in the world, he was above the world. Yosef never remained above the world. When Yosef went down to Mitzrayim, Yosef actually needed to become part of the world. What do I mean by that? He couldn't remain aloof. Because what did his master do to him? What did Yosef's master do to Yosef? He appointed him to become what? What? He pointed him to become in charge of his house. Yosef needed to be in charge of all the accounting and all the bookkeeping and everything that was going on. His master had a huge estate and a huge business. He was the manager of everything. So he couldn't think about, he couldn't ignore the work. He was in charge of the work. Then the next thing, when he, wasn't, when he was thrown into jail, what was his job? He became the, the, He became the manager of the prison. The chief warden appointed him over the prison. He became the manager of the prison. So you have to be concerned. Like you see later, he sees these guys are down. He asks them how they're doing. He has a conversation with them. He's involved. He's not like David Mincha. Yosef is not sitting in prison and David Mincha for all the time that he's there. He's involved with everybody. Next, he becomes the king. He becomes the viceroy of Egypt during that time. And then later, the whole world. He's busy with the entire world. He's feeding all, all of humanity. He's listening to everybody's problems. He's dealing with... Ed- there, is, there isn't a person who's busier than Yosef. He is the busiest person in the world. And yet, here's the amazing thing. Yosef did not lose his dveikos from Hashem even for one second. To him, he was able to find God and the eibishter even in all the dealings that he did. Not that to him the world was canceled in front of God. To him the content of creation itself is godly. In every interaction that he spoke to any person, he, f- he saw God speaking to him through this person. He was able to see the inner Kabbalistic, deeper, higher meaning of every event that was happening, every conversation, every person, everything that happened. He was able to see it from a godly light. I'll tell you a beautiful story. Rabbi Yitzhak of Bar-Ditchev, once came to Reb Shmelke of Nicholasburg. Reb Shmelke of Nicholasburg was a one of the great Hasidic masters, a student of the as of, of, of Richard Magid. He made a sefer called, no, that's his brother. He made a sefer, safer sefer, But Reb Shmelke Reb, uh, was huge, huge tzadik. In any case, Reb Levi Yitzhak Bar-Ditchev arrived. And Reb Levi Yitzhak Bar-Ditchev used to wear two piers of tefillin at the same time on his head. He wore Rashi and he wore Rebbeinu Tam. We usually wear either rashi and then we take it off, we put a rabbinotam. Rebbe would we wear both Tvillins at the same time. He had smaller twillin with the talus, and he was known as a holy Jew, right? A very holy Jew. And he comes to visit them in Nicholasburg, And the first thing he does is he goes walks into the kitchen with his talis and his tvillin. And he walks over to the Rebitzin, the wife of the Nicholsburg Rebitson, and he says to her, So, with his twillin, before Dominic, so what's for lunch today? So, um, she looks at him because he, he had an appearance of like, uh, uh, like a rebbe, a holy man. But he walks into the kitchen over here and he starts asking with his talis and his tefillin, what's for lunch? And she starts telling him, then he says to her, do the people over here, your helpers, do they, do they cook well? And she says, uh, yeah. She felt it was disrespectful not to answer, so she told him. And he's inquiring all kinds of other things about what's going on in the kitchen and what are they eating and how and so forth. Then he leaves, and the student, and there were some students of Rav Shemelka looking, and they felt very, very disturbed by this. How can someone with tefillin on his head, with a talus, be asking, inquiring about the kitchen, about such gashoniest things? He looks like he's a glutton, that he's now, all he needs to know is, what's for lunch? Fine. She's telling him, right? Then later, he comes into shul. And when he comes into shul, out of all people in the shul, he finds the, like, the, shul, the shul troublemaker the guy that's always, you know, if you ever have to shush someone, this is the guy that you need to shush and quiet. And Reb Levi goes right over to this guy and he starts a conversation with him. And they're talking about the most, the most, like, insignificant things that there are. He's talking about this and about that, about the news and about politics. The Reb Shmelke Reb of Nicholasburg used to daven. He was a flaming fire. Reb Levi actually took... The, the way of davening from Rebbe, from Rebbe Shemelka, he was like a daven, like a fireball. And when he davened, the, he was very mocked but that no one should talk in his shul. It was a very quiet shul. Meanwhile, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak comes in and this is the time, like this was only one troublemaker. It was that guy who they from time to time needed to shh hit. But now that Rabbi Levi Yitzchak was there, it was two of them. They were, they were sitting and talking. And the students were getting so annoyed. Who is this guy who has the audacity? And one of them got so angry, and he went to run over to Rebbe Levi Yitzchak and throw him out, grab him by his beard and throw him out of the shawl. But for whatever reason, he, did, he thought it would make even a bigger commotion so he controlled himself. After davening, Reb Shmelka sat down to eat, and he saw Rebbe Yitzchak, his face lit up. He called him over, and he had him sit right next to him, and he, was, and he basically shared his plate with him. He, which was a sign of the ultimate, the ultimate um, uh, closeness. And the students that were there, they couldn't, they couldn't understand. And it bothered them. He totally, said, Rabbi, I don't understand. <laughs> the he said, this guy, do you know where he was? Be, you know, before, with this villain in the kitchen, talking to the rabbits and about tuna casseroles and lasagna that was for lunch. The, a, 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 and in Davinic, he didn't stop talking with you-know-who. If this is the person that you are makar of like this. So, the, the, the Reb Shmelke answered him, he said, like this. The Gemara says that Rav, one of the great sages of the Talmud, all his life he never spoke a, a, a he never spoke mundane talk. So, Reb Shmelke asks, What does it mean, Rav? And all the other sages did speak mundane talk. They didn't either. They were also great sages. Why are we saying about Rav that he never spoke any sichas is any 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 worldly things all of his life? And is this the biggest praise we can say about Rav? I'm sure we can say other things. So he says that what it really means is not that Rav never spoke only Torah. Rav spoke with people. And he the the the, the novelty of Rav, the greatest of Rav was that he. Even while he conversed with all kinds of people about all kinds of subjects in regards to all worldly matters, he never for one second stopped his dvekos in God. And every conversation, he was unifying mystical unions in every word that he said. It all had godly meaning. There wasn't even one conversation that was just mundane and just silliness. He was able, and he says, most Sadiqim, including myself, this is what he said can only maintain such high-level godly consciousness only for three hours after davening. After we pray and we kind of so strongly root ourselves into the divine for the next three hours we can be in such a godly place that every single thing that happens to us we can see the godly of that. But after three hours we lose it. Reblevi Yitzhak or Breditcha the same like Rav is able to maintain such motion all day long. And he never loses it. That's Yosef at It's the level of being able to be in normal conversation to the point that you have no clue where this person is at and they're talking to you as if... And yet, at the same time, they're seeing in your conversation a completely divine discussion where Hashem is communicating with them through your words because everything has to have a reason. Everything is godly. And they're reading into everything on a much higher, deeper, godly level. That's Yosef. Let's take a look for a moment. Just, I'm just going to conclude to share with this. Let's take a look for a moment at the difference between when Yosef became, Yosef wiggled his way, so to speak, up to power and the difference between the others, our forefathers, they were also saved from difficult situations. Let's go back to Avram Avinu. When Avram was saved from his, from his um, enemies, when Avram was saved from his oppressors, Nimrod took Avram Avinu and threw him into a fire. How was Avram saved? The fire had no control over him. The fire didn't burn him. Avram survived. Why? Avram was above the world. You realize? It's not that the fire changed. Avram was in a complete different godly place. As we said before, Avram Avinu can be in Grand Central Station and and it doesn't exist because he only sees God. When he was in the fire, he only experienced God. The fire was canceled. In front of God, there is no fire. When Avram goes to war, he picks up sand. Miraculously, he beats the enemies. Throws sand, and it becomes an arrows. Again, a miracle. When Yaakov Avinu has to confront Lavan, God comes to Lavan in a dream, and he warns Lavan, don't mess with Yaakov. Again, something above the world is canceling something natural in this world. Someone is interfering with the natural order. Yaakov is going to meet Esav. What happens? Again, it says that the Malachim, Yaakov sent angels. Those angels beat Esav up a bunch of times. The time Esav met Yaakov, again, divine interference from above the natural order, nullifying the natural order, humbling it, you know, suppressing it. How does Yosef become the great king and the great everything? There's no miracles. There's nothing from above. Everybody who comes into contact with Yosef suddenly becomes co- godly. You know what's happened? He comes into his mouth. He said earlier, his master sees that Yosef is special. The prison warden sees him. Yosef is special. The two guys converse with him. They tell them their dreams. Oh, it's Hashem gave them the dream. But Paro, Yosef comes to him. Paro speaks to him. He says, you're a godly man. He points. Everything is bederah It's within the natural world, but it's so not natural. You know it's so godly. Because everybody who is within Yosef's vicinity turns godly. That's the ultimate power of transformation. That's the ultimate part of b'shalaynavshin. Let me conclude and bring this. And that's what we mean. That when the moment Yosef went to Mitzrayim, he was already the ruler over Egypt. The moment he went down, because when he was going down, he was going. His very entry into it was not to be a prisoner, but was to master it. But the depth of this. So now we'll conclude. I mentioned earlier that this week is the the 19th of Kislev where Reb Zalman of Liadi was arrested. Here's an amazing thing. Reb Zalman of Liadi was arrested. The way he came out of his jail, the way he got liberated was not through an incredible godly miracle. From above. It wasn't that some power from beyond nation. There was a letter from the Balatanya to Rav Baruch of Mezhabush was the great grandson of the Balshemtav. The two of them were very good friends, and then at a certain point they didn't get along with each other. There was a big fight between Rabbarakh of Mejibush and the Balatanya. For whatever reason, that's what the letter is dealing with. The Balatanyas, such <laughs> a beautiful letter, the Balatanya says to Rabarakh of Mejrebush, um, you should be, you should, your grandson of the Balshamtav, he says, you should have the tremendous gratitude to me. He says, Why? Because I went to prison not for myself. I went for prison to defend your grandfather. I could have said, "Why are you taking me? There's a grandson who is alive. Go take Reb Baruch. Let him defend the Zayda." But I stood up and I took the heat. So you should be thankful. Anyway, it's a beautiful letter. But it's the al Rebbe records in that letter that not said Reb of is a tzaddik beyond tzaddikim. We're thinking with very holy Jews. But Reb Baruch of when he met the Balatanya, and they had their argument. Reb Baruch said to him, "I don't understand. Why do you have to go to Petersburg? Why do you have to go to jail?" Why didn't you just put your hand over your uh, over your brow like this brow? Just put your hand on your brow like this. And we'll go like this, and by doing that, you would wipe away all the judgments. Meaning, you would have nullified all the degrees. A tzaddik can do that. A tzaddik can go like this and nullify. And you know what? You know what? The altar ever answered it. When Yaakov Avinu was confronted with Esav, Yaakov also could have gone like this and waved his hand. At, brushed his hand on his brow and he didn't do that on his brow and do that what did Yaakov do? he sent a gift to Esau he worked with him he didn't overpower him through godly powers from above he worked with him so the Bala Tanya and then then it says the the previous Chabad Rebbe writes that the Balat, the Alter Rebbe the Rebbe Rebbe, Rebbe had he wanted he could have set all of Petersburg on fire he could have burnt down Tanya Soviet Tanya Soviet was the prison that he was he could have brought down in angels and they would have torched the entire thing instantly. He would have been freed. He didn't want to do that. He wanted to work from within. How was he redeemed in the end? You know that the Altar rebbe spent days upon days in questioning. They, they, they questioned him. They, what is it called? They uh, interrogated him. And he had to explain to these peasanty minds of the Russian noblemen, okay? They were very coarse minds. He had to explain to them the truths of the divine unity of Achtus Hashem. That they should understand that they should understand and validate the truths of Hasidus. That the Bolshem was is not making a new religion. He worked from within and he transformed them. And they themselves freed him. And when he was freed, you know what he said? He was saying that Pasuk and that's when they came to notify him that he was reading. And he writes this in a letter to Levi Yitzchak. Because this is the same story like Yosef. Not overriding it from above. Not being beyond it. Going into it. Transforming it from below. That's the ultimate victory. And that's the victory that the Balatanya gives us all. The ability to not float over our troubles and problems in life. But to be so deeply rooted in God that you know that there can't be anything in this world that is not God. And therefore, every situation you know, if you know with absolute certainty you get that by learning Hasidus, that every situation is, even your enemy is also Hashem in a different face, then you can turn around your enemy and it itself becomes holy. Just to add to that, he also adds that the Alter Eber, when he went to jail, you see, he voluntarily entered into that cause. It wasn't like it was imposed upon. He, valid, he, he, he agreed to the exile. Had he not agreed to be imprisoned, they would have never been able to imprison him. And the proof, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe says, is because when they came to arrest him, and they took him, and they and the, on the way to Petersburg from, uh, from Liuzhna, on the way to Petersburg, they passed, they came on Friday, and it came Friday midday, and the altar Rebbe didn't w- want to stay there for Shabbos, didn't want to continue. He asked them to stop, and they ignored him. So suddenly, the wheels on the, on the, uh, on the uh, wagon broke. And they brought it in and they, brought it and they repaired it and this and that and the horses died. They just could not get the wagon to go and they ended up staying there for Shabbos. They actually asked the, the Alter Rebbe permission if at least they realized that they can't mess with him and if he doesn't want to go, it's not going to go. They asked him permission. They should at least be able to move the horses, I think, over to the side of the road. And he gave him permission for that and that's where they stayed for Shabbos. If he didn't want to, he wasn't going he went because he wanted to but every time you constrict yourself and you're the one who is self-constricting it's not a real constriction so we have to realize that that's the story with our Nishkam when we enter into life and ultimately it's a self a willing self-constricting constriction and since it's ultimately a self-constricting constriction it's not a real constriction we have we are able to master everything. That's also the meaning that Yosef, when Yosef went to Egypt, the Shekhinah went with him. What does that mean? The, by, the, by God coming with us into this descent, we remain above it even when we're within it. The whole time. And that's Moshiach. May we merit. I mean, that's the whole purpose of the golos so that we can take the golos itself, transform it into Geula, and then we have from Geula, we have Geula, and that's Moshiach Tzedek. May we merit to see the Geula now, now, and now. Oh, man.